You're listening to TIP. I mean, one of my philosophies on business and life is to compete with dumb rich people. On today's show, I chat with Nick Huber about a more untraditional asset class that you can invest in in real estate, and that's self-storage. We talk about how to find, finance, and run self-storage facilities, the requirements to be a successful entrepreneur, and much more. Nick Huber is an entrepreneur and real estate investor who started a company called Sweaty Startup in December of 2018 because he believes the Shark Tank and tech crunch culture is ruining the real spirit of low-risk entrepreneurship. He is also the host of the Sweaty Startup podcast with a mission to help people do common things uncommonly well. I personally love Shark Tank as a TV show, as entertainment, but I couldn't agree with Nick's philosophies any more than I do. I completely agree that there are low-risk ways to be an entrepreneur that aren't talked about enough and that too many people miss out on ideas that seem, you know, quote-unquote common because they want to start the next Facebook. I've talked about my philosophy regarding this on the show before. I really do think that having a billion-dollar aspiration, you know, an aspiration to build a billion-dollar business can really stop a lot of people from creating businesses that are much smaller than that, but are still super successful and truly life-changing. Don't take that to mean you don't have to work hard because every entrepreneurial journey takes hard work. Rather, it's about how you use that hard work and where you direct it. Be sure to follow Nick on Twitter. His username is Sweaty Startup. Following Nick will instantly change social media from a time-sucking activity to a true learning opportunity. I absolutely love all the stuff he puts out. I read almost every single one of his tweets he has. I don't have a lot of post notifications on for people, but Nick is one of those people. So be sure to check him out on Twitter. And if you'd like to, you can follow me as well. My username is the Robert Leonard. Links to both Nick and I's Twitter are in the show notes below. And now without further delay, let's get into this week's episode with Nick Huber. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Nick Huber. Welcome to the show, Nick. Robert, thanks for having me, man. I'm a big fan of your work. I appreciate that. I'm a fan of yours as well. And when I'm on Twitter, I typically read a tweet before I actually read who it's from. If the tweet's interesting, then I'll see who posted it. My eyes will go up and I'll see who actually posted it. And then I'll keep scrolling. But over the last few months, I kept reading tweets and saying to myself, wow, that's interesting, or I really like that. And then I'd look up and I'd read that it was Nick Huber tweeting it. And that happened over and over and over and over again. And eventually I was like, all right, I have to have this guy on the show. So needless to say, I'm personally super excited to have you here. And I'm sure the audience is going to enjoy it too. Let's kick off the show with a quick rundown on your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah. So I was born in Southern Indiana, 
ran track and field in high school, started a small business mowing lawns, went to Cornell University in Ithaca to run track, started a small business in 2011 doing pickup and delivery student storage out of our dorm rooms, basically called Storage Squad. In 2016, leveraged that into building our first self-storage facility. That's where my partner and I, while still working together, we kind of divided and I went to self-storage and he kept running the service business. In early 2021, so six months ago in January, we sold our service business storage squad and rebranded our real estate portfolio under the name Bolt Storage. And now we are running a full-fledged real estate private equity company. One of the things you tweet about is real estate. I mean, you've done a lot in business. You just mentioned it. But a lot of things you talk about, I found interesting. And I want to dive into a lot of those. But I want to focus a good portion of this episode on self-storage and really do a deep dive into it because it's an asset class and a part of real estate that I've been interested in and I've wanted to learn more about it. But we just haven't had a guest on the show yet to really dive into it. So to get started, we'll dive into self-storage and then we'll get into a couple of the other interesting concepts that I've seen you talk about. For someone listening who's never heard of self-storage or maybe has just heard of the concept but doesn't really know how it works, what exactly is self-storage and what does it mean to invest in self-storage? So it's a bunch of garages with overhead doors. We invest in row storage facilities, which means not class A multi-story climate control facilities that you see in the city owned by CubeSmart or Life Storage. We buy rural tertiary market self-storage facilities that have a sign out front that owned by generally the sole proprietor of the business. And you know they rent those individual storage units out for monthly revenue, just like an apartment owner. I've been in the real estate game for say three to five years now. It depends on what you consider as a starting point in real estate. But even for me, someone who's done close to or just over 10 deals now, self-storage has seemed a bit daunting. You and your partner built an entire self-storage facility from the ground up back in 2016 at just 26 years old. And that amazed me because that's how old I am right now. And I don't think that I could imagine doing that. You didn't buy an existing facility, which I think is a daunting enough. You built it from scratch. So is my idea of it being daunted misguided? Is self-storage an asset class that is actually realistically doable for a new investor listening to the show today? With some cash, yeah. I mean, like in most commercial real estate assets, the debt terms are not as good as single family. So you're not going to get 90% leverage on an asset. So small self storage facility, maybe $500,000. So you need one or $200,000 to get a deal done, which is a lot of capital. But as far as operating and putting the deal together, it's a lot like many other forms of real estate. So definitely not too daunting. I mean, we have 4,900 units right now under management. Seven of those are multifamily. Like apartments, and four of them are mobile home units. And I'd say in the last quarter, 30% of our emergency stress came from those seven extra units, right? So, self storage is not a, an emergency business where you're replacing a boiler or appliances or something that it lives in. We have people, average visitor comes to our units once every two months, and it's a steel box with a door. So, complicated from a lot of tenants, a lot of moving parts, month to month leases, new customers, phone calls, billing. But as far as maintaining and keeping the place clean, that part's a breeze compared to a lot of asset classes. You touched on the financing piece not being as easy. And I want to dive into that because that's one of the biggest components of real estate. How does financing work on a self-storage facility? What are the typical down payment requirements? What are the loan terms, etc.? So we could go into the details of how we structure our real estate private equity company and raise money from outside investors if you want to go that deep. But from a basic standpoint, you're looking at 
60 to 75% LTV. So if you're buying a million dollar building, you're going to need 600 to $750,000 of outside debt. That's what you could achieve from a local bank. You Generally a 20 to 25 year amortization schedule instead of a 30 year that you get with single family. And you have interest principal, you personally guarantee the loan, and you need to put a lot of cash down, obviously, if you're buying a big building like that. What are the interest rates usually like on something like this? Not as good as what you guys get in a single family or multifamily space because it's not government subsidized or government secured in some cases with some loans. But 4.25% interest rate is what we lock in right now without prepayment penalties because our goal is to increase net operating income, make the facility more valuable and do a refinance a year or two years after. So we're okay with higher interest rates without prepayment penalties. But if we were to lock in a five-year term with 531 prepay penalty, 375 3.5% or so from a local bank. So 375 to 425, none of that's really that horrible. My first mortgage was 475, I think. And that was five, six years ago. So I mean, a commercial loan at that rate, they're really not awful. No, you're right. It's not bad at all. I want to dive into, and we'll do this in just a little bit, we'll dive into how to actually analyze a deal that you're considering purchasing. But from a financing perspective, how is a bank valuing that business or that asset? Like, What are they doing for an appraisal or something along those lines for a self-storage facility? So it's all on cap rates. It's all about how much money the asset makes. When you're buying a house, it's all about the comparable transactions. Meaning you look down the street, what did that house sell for? That's how you compare the value of different houses. Appraisers and bankers care about one thing in the commercial real estate world, and that is profitability of the asset, net operating income. That's the almighty figure. So there's cap rates, meaning like if you spend a million dollars on a self-storage facility and you bought it at an eight cap, it generates 8% of that million dollars in net operating income in a year. So $80,000 net operating. If it's a five cap, $50,000 of net operating income. The lower the cap rate, obviously, the more expensive the deal as far as how much it yields. But yeah, that's how it's valued. So the good thing for us, we take a small business approach to real estate. We kind of focus on, hey, let's make this thing more valuable by increasing the profitability. And then you can put more debt on it or you can sell it or whatever you might want to do. So it is evaluated from the bank perspective, just like you would any residential property over five units. That's interesting. Now, I'm wondering... If I go to a bank and I say, I'm going to buy this five, six, seven unit property, anything over five units, they have a way of saying, okay, a two bedroom unit should rent for this much and essentially getting comps for what rent should be. And then they kind of, in my experience, they come up with what profitability should be. They don't necessarily rely on specifically my numbers. How does that work in the self storage space? Are they going out and getting kind of like comps for the different size units that you have? Or how are they coming up with those numbers? They do comps based on cap rates. So they look at other transactions from other self-storage facilities that sold at certain cap rates based on how much money they were making. But yeah, when we go to a bank to underwrite a new deal, we give them our full underwriting package of like, okay, here's the rents now. This is one to raise rents to. Here's our market study. Here's our monthly revenue all the way out to 80 months. Our monthly expenses all the way out to 80 months. How the debt service, where the sources and uses of the capital are coming from. And so that they can get comfortable with our business plan, our business model, and ultimately the profitability of the asset. That's what they care about. I want to walk through that deal I mentioned a few minutes ago when you built a self-storage facility from the ground up. How did you find the property, the land itself, and how much did it cost to acquire just the land? The land was $250,000. Nowadays, maybe five hundred grand. It's on an artery out of Ithaca, New York. If you Google Maps, you can search 1401 Dryden Road, Freeville, New York. But yeah, it's a pretty high traffic, 18,000 cars a day, but it had a slope pretty significant slope. We had to build our self-storage facility into the ground, second level, meaning you drive up around back to get to the second level. Bought the building for $250,000, came in with a budget of $1.8 million to build it. 
but quickly went over budget and ended up spending 2.4 million to build the facility, go back to our investors to raise more money on the deal and finally get the doors open. What were you looking for in a location when you were searching for a piece of land to build on? Did the land need to have certain characteristics or was it demographic data based on the city or the area that it's in? Yeah, we cared a lot about the market in the area for self-storage. What are the competitors charging? How full are they? If they're all almost full and they're charging good money, then we figured we could compete and we underwrote at those rents. And then, yeah, we looked for a piece of property that was over five acres where we could fit all the storage we wanted to fit without going all climate-controlled interior storage up three levels, right? What are the zoning requirements or permits or things like that required for this? I know when I look for land to consider building something, I know there's a lot of legality things that you need to consider. What are you looking for and what's important for self-storage when you're going to buy just a raw piece of land? Yeah, you're looking for light industrial zoning. And it all depends on the area where I do business in upstate New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, where self-storage is frowned upon, right? Nobody wants self-storage in their backyard. Nobody wants self-storage in their town. And it's not easy. So yeah, you got to find light industrial zoning, which is tight supply right now because all the zoning was created back in the 80s when industrial it wasn't as big of a use as it is now. One of the oldest adages in all of real estate is location, location, location. I'm assuming it is the same, but do you find that it's the same with self-storage? How important is location for self-storage? We get about half of our new customers online. So you can definitely operate a self-storage facility with a crappy, not high traffic location. And if the price is right, you can do it. But yeah, it still definitely matters. I mean, you want to be pretty close to a lot of people. So that's what's important. I'd say location is when you're doing a new development or looking at an acquisition, it's important. But now we do almost all acquisitions. We built our first facility. We bought 23 more since then. We don't care as much about demographics or location. We care about how full the facility is when we buy it, right? We look for a 100% occupied facility with submarket rents. That's what we look for when we're going to buy a facility. I mentioned that I've been interested in self-storage for a few years now. So every time I drive by and I see one, I tend to slow down and I check it out at least the best I can that I from the road. And then for the next 20 or 30 minutes of my drive, I'm consumed by thinking about why that investor chose that location or how they're making money or what they're doing to compete. I mean, just all the different business things you could think about. And I actually do a lot of driving through pretty rural towns to get to motocross races. And I was actually, I just looked up on the map while we were chatting to see where that Ithaca location was that you just mentioned, because I was just out in central New York in a town called New Berlin for a motocross race. And that's what was in the back of my mind. And I've seen some facilities in towns where Quite literally, I think that the number of cows and horses outnumber the number of people. And so I'm assuming that the answer is yes, since people do it. But can money really be made in self-storage, even in very rural areas like that, when there isn't a large population? You know, every investor has different philosophy. Some investors only want to buy in the top 50 major metros, and they want to buy in growing towns like Austin, Atlanta. And therefore, the yield in those towns is tight. You got to spend top dollar for properties in those areas. You're buying at three caps, four caps, whatever it might be. We're after cash flow. I don't care where it is. If it cash flows, it's an asset that I'm interested in. So obviously, we've looked at where we can buy the most affordable asset for the given cash flow that it has. So yeah, we've bought some assets in very small towns, Shippenville, Pennsylvania, Newfield, New York. We're talking under 5,000 people out on country roads. But when you're buying an asset that already has a bunch of customers in it, it's a lot less risky than building one from the ground up. So ground up development in a rural town, don't recommend it. But if they already have a bunch of customers and it's cash flowing and you can have some clear value add when you buy it, that's what I'm after. 
How are you finding those deals? That's the hard part about storage. Everybody wants to own storage right now. We bought some deals off LoopNet. We've bought four properties off LoopNet. We bought six others from listed agents. It's getting hotter. So we're doing a lot of cold calling. We call the facility. We send mailers to the facilities. We have acquisitions teams that literally pound the phones and call self-storage owners and say, hey, we're bolt storage. Would you be interested in selling to us? That's the way that we're able to find yield right now because once a deal hits the market, oftentimes we lose the deal. For on-market properties, we've sent 20 LOIs in the last two months and we've gotten one under contract. So we lose a lot of bids. For those who don't know that are listening, haven't done commercial real estate, things like that, explain what an LOI is. It's a letter of intent to purchase. It outlines what price you would pay and what the main terms of the deal would be. And you sign that before you go into purchase and sale agreement. What is the benefit to the seller for selling to you guys? I mean, why are they willing to sell? If you can do just these small couple things to make a business cash flow and make it work better, why wouldn't they just do that themselves? Why are they selling it to you? Well, that's the question that all entrepreneurs of all kinds, you know, why do we have a competitive advantage? And oftentimes it's just doing simple things. And many owners of self-storage have a mindset of being 100% occupied is good. We want to have every single one of our units rented all the time. Well, if you know a lot about storage, you know that's not ideal, right? You want to have always you want to have some vacancy. 92 to 95% is perfect. So if you're 100%, you're not charging enough money. And oftentimes, they don't use software. They keep handwritten ledgers. We bought 1,000 units in Elmira, New York, handwritten ledgers when we acquired the assets. Literally no software, even Excel was not used. So yeah, just blocking and tackling of running a small business. Software helps. Online payments help. Automatic gates and text messages and stuff to make the customer's life easier helps. And it also helps us save headcount and drive revenue. So we can maybe we're buying at a five cap on the seller's numbers, but we can turn it into a six, seven, eight cap for us because we can run it more efficiently. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree. 
expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. You mentioned that you went over your construction costs on that property you built. Walk us through why that happened, what some of the issues were, and what you learned from it. Well, the main thing was I was 26 years old, excited, but basically ignorant of how any of this stuff works. And we went in, my dad worked for a construction company and he's an excitable guy, got us all pumped up. We went out and raised 500 grand in investor capital to put the deal together. We put in about 300 grand of our own cash from our service business that we had and got started. And when we got started, we realized that, okay, there's going to be overages. We bid it out wrong and spent a lot more money. So we went back to the bank, asked them for some more money, went to each investor, asked them for about 25% more money, finished the deal all in now for 2.5 million. And once we got it open, we hit our stride. We started operating it really well. The net operating income went up and we opened the doors in 2017. In late 2019, we went back to the bank and said, Hey, this thing's doing really well. You know, Could we do a cash out refi? And they said, yeah, let's, so let's get it appraised and it's worth 5.2 million. So we pulled out $2 million of equity out of the asset and we got to keep it. So it was a phenomenal win for us and our team. I know you said you raised outside capital. How were you able to fund that and get that money from investors at 26 years old? Did you have a massive network? I'm sure putting up 300,000 of your own money probably helped ease some investors' nerves, but walk us through that process of actually finding investors. My dad put in 100 grand. That was probably a very unwise decision for him knowing his net worth. I went from neighbor to neighbor to friend to friend. I mean, the broker who was the realtor on the transaction invested 120 grand in the deal because I sold him. I was just going from table to table selling anybody that I potentially could on the asset until nine months later, we finally had all the capital we needed to make the deal happen. How were you able to structure that over such a long period of time? Yeah, we used a standard real estate private equity structure, meaning like the LPs, the limited partners who invest. And then there's the GP share, which is me, the, the sponsor. And we owned both share classes because we put some of our cash in as well. But the LPs were entitled to the first 8% of the yield. And anything above that, we split 50-50 between the GP, me, and the LP, the investor. So we had to get them a return on their money before we, as the sponsors of the real estate deal, got to make a profit. How were those investors feeling when you had to go back to them and get more money? I think they handled it well. I mean, I'm an over-communicator. And if there's anything that we did well throughout that process, it's manage expectations and just be honest with them and not be afraid to share bad news and not try to sugarcoat things. So yeah, it was a tough time. Very tough conference call that I remember vividly shaking before the call that we had with all these investors telling them what was happening. But they took it well. They put in the extra money and we got it built and it's been a huge win. So it feels good now, but yeah, it was very stressful. What would have happened if you couldn't have raised that money from those people? Would you have lost the deal altogether? Or could you have raised it from other investors? No, luckily we kept about 200 grand of our own cash aside. So we had a fallback amount of money that my partner and I had on hand to get the deal done. And the bank did as well go ahead and pay. I mean, their choices were slim too. It's like half built project or go ahead and fund the rest. So luckily everybody put in cash, but we had a little bit of cash in reserve just in case. What do those investors' return numbers look like today, given the success that you've had with that property? You know, I got to kind of be careful about advertising 
investment returns on public. But yeah, I mean, it's gone really well. They're, we're cash flowing at plus 10% year over year, and they've seen a lot of appreciation in some of their capital back too. So definitely everybody, most of them went on to do additional deals with us. That was just going to be my next question is how many of those investors have actually won up and come on to additional deals? Two of the five, but I think the other three just didn't have the cash right to keep going. It was a pretty ragtag group of investors for the first deal. How have your money raising abilities and processes changed from that first deal to what you're doing today? How are you raising most of your money today? Yeah, it took nine months to raise the $500,000 and a ton of meetings and traveling everywhere. To put it in perspective, we close on a deal tomorrow that had about $950,000 of capital needed to fund the deal. And we raised it in 30 minutes with an email to our LP list. So real estate is such a game of momentum that once you get trust and once you've done some deals and once people get a feel for you and your processes, if you deliver, then people really want yield. So it's been a wild ride as far as LPs go, but it's almost all from Twitter though. And we're going to talk about Twitter a little bit later in the conversation because I want to learn more about that. I consider my personal expertise in real estate to be deal analysis. My background's in finance, accounting. I've just always been good with that kind of stuff. I believe that you can make an analysis for any strategy, any real estate strategy, as detailed and complex as you want. But really, for every strategy, at the end of the day, the goal is to forecast what you expect to bring in for revenue, pay out as costs, and then set some money aside for reserves. The components that make up each of those categories, the different components of revenue, costs, and reserves vary depending on whether you're flipping, your rentals, you're doing self-storage. But those are always the variables that we're trying to forecast. When it comes to self-storage revenue, how do you estimate what you'll be able to charge for rent for each of the different size units that you have? Yeah. I mean, I've underwritten enough deals now. I've probably underwritten two deals a week for five years. So I know enough of the details to know that, hey, if we can get a property that we're looking at with pricing expectations under about 100 times monthly revenue, the deal is going to look good on paper if it's full. Because I know that if it's a facility's full, no matter what, no matter what town it's in, if it's 100% full, I can go in and raise rents 10 to 20% right away on day one, no matter what. So yeah, I mean, you're right. We have models that are extremely complex that model out our waterfall structure, our sources and uses and have 20 tabs and all the amortization on all the loans and when the debt gets paid off and all the exit assumptions. But I can look at a property on Google Maps and get some basic rent roll information. And I know down to about 5% either way what we're going to need to pay to buy that asset. Same exact thing for me, almost to the T. Because when I first got into real estate, I made the goal of you said you did two a week for the last five years. When I first got started, I was super nerdy and I forced myself to analyze. And these are smaller deals, so it's not as much of an analysis, but I was forced myself to analyze 10 deals every single day for six months straight. So I've analyzed probably close to 2,000 deals now. And like you said, those first ones had really complex models and I can still use those to this day. But really, if you give me a property, I can know in five minutes with an envelope whether I would buy that property and if I would, what I would pay for it. Yeah, it's fascinating, right? The complexity or the simplicity of the deal. I mean, we still do a full underwriting, right? But to get through the smell test phase of like, hey, this is a property for sale. We need to know if we need to spend that three hours to underwrite a deal. We can get to that conclusion pretty quickly. So that's a blessing. But I will say that the data coming in from facilities that we operate now, it's changing everything. Just in the past six months, we've acquired 20 properties and we're seeing how it happens, seeing how the rent increase takes effect, seeing really what happens to the expenses and having that data of actually a pretty large operating portfolio now, it makes it so much easier because before that we were shooting blind, just guessing what our expenses were going to be. 
One of the things that's interesting, I think that I bring to real estate is that my background was actually in stock investing before I got into real estate. So I was a big, big Warren Buffett fan. That's how I got into stock investing. And so I apply a lot of Warren Buffett stock investing principles to real estate. And one of his principles is that he should be able to know whether he should buy an asset and pay what price on the back of a napkin is what he says. And it's the same idea. And I've kind of brought that to real estate. It sounds like you do the same thing. And I think that's super important because new investors specifically who listen to the show, I know a lot of them spend hours and hours and hours analyzing every single deal. So they're only analyzing one or two a week and wondering why they're not finding any deals. It's because you need to analyze 100 before you're going to find one good deal. Yep. That's right. You're right on the money. It takes practice. What are the major costs for running a self-storage facility? So the way our company's structured is that each property is its own LLC and we have a management company that answers the phones and charges the rent and hires the contractors and manages the actual property. So we pay a 5% management fee to that company, a little bit of on-site payroll, you know, $500 a month or so per property, which is a lot lower than a lot of our competitors. That's another one of our advantages. Then you have snow removal, lawn care, pest control, credit card transactions, capital reserves, and then utilities, marketing, things like that. So generally speaking on a larger property, we're around 25% operating expense ratio to our revenue. In residential real estate, where I typically invest right now, the reserves part of a deal analysis is typically made up of an assumed vacancy rate to cover any lost rent that the property might have, CapEx, and repairs and maintenance. What reserves do you set aside for a self-storage facility? And how do you estimate those in your deal analysis? These buildings are fairly simple, right? It doesn't have utilities. A lot of them don't have electric. A lot of them don't have HVAC. So we're looking at the roofs and we're looking at the doors and we're looking at the pavement and the drainage because those are the big problems. The foundation can have problems. The roof can have problems and the doors can have problems. And other than that, it's does the property drain okay? And how's the parking and driveways, right? So fairly simple over the grand scheme, but yeah, old doors need a lot more CapEx, like overhead door companies is a pretty big expense. Drainage problems can happen when it rains really hard and Water is the enemy of self-storage, obviously. So yeah, I would say doing drainage projects, replacing doors and the roof, you know, steel roofs last 20 or 30 years and got to replace those too. How about security? Is that a big issue for self-storage? Do you ever have issues with people breaking into other people's units or even just outside people breaking in and stealing stuff? Definitely. It's part of the business. Unfortunately, with self-storage, you deal with a lot of people in desperate situations who have just been laid off, fired, lost their house, whatever it might be. So you do have a little bit of an issue with any business. You deal with some shady characters, but self-storage seems to have even more of them. So that's definitely one of the struggles. So yeah, we put a security system on site. Very rarely does that actually help because the police can't use video to do much of anything at all, but it's deterrent, right? And an automated gate helps a lot too. And overall, it's not a very big problem. I mean, we'll have across 5,000 units, we'll have one break in a month reported or so. So it's not too bad. When that does happen... How does it work? Do you have insurance that covers it? And so the people's stuff that was stolen, your insurance covers to pay it. Do they have to have insurance themselves? Are they kind of, they know that that's a risk of having their stuff there and there's no backing for them? How does that work? Yeah, we generally require them to have their own insurance. It's kind of like renting an apartment, right? You're not, as the landlord, it, your insurance policy is not going to cover the contents of that person's apartment. So, yeah, we require them to have renter's insurance and have an additional insured on their unit, or they have to buy third party insurance that we allow them to buy through our system for like $9 a month. One of the big issues with residential rental real estate is sometimes squatters. How does that work in the self-storage facility? I think a lot of people have probably seen the TV shows, Storage Wars and things like that. How real is that? Like, What do you do with somebody that just is not paying and they're not willing to move their stuff out? How does that like kind of eviction process work? 
The eviction rules around self-storage are not nearly as strict as houses, which is good, right? If somebody stops paying their rent on a house, it may take six months to evict. If somebody stops paying on their storage unit on average in New York and PA, it's you know 60 to 90 days to get them out. So, But yeah, I mean, you definitely deal with it. You got to go through the lien laws. You got to post ads in the paper. You got to have an auction. You got to give them proper notice by certified mail, all the different things that are required to go through to make sure you have a legal eviction. How costly is that in comparison to a residential eviction? I'd say not nearly as costly because a self-storage facility has 300 units, right? So one unit being tied up for a couple of months is not too big of a problem. But yeah, it's still, it's definitely not, the auction is definitely not a profitable endeavor doing the storage auctions. They make it look sexy on the TV shows. It's a giant pain in the butt. You mentioned 300 units there. Is there a point where self-storage starts to make sense? Like If somebody has an opportunity, they're listening to this, they start to love self-storage. They're like, oh, there's a 10-unit storage facility down the street. Is that too few units to be interested in? Does it have to be 50 or 100 or maybe 300 to even make any sense? I would say to remotely manage one that's out of town or to get an outside investor or to try to be able to cover some of those expenses like capital reserves and stuff you need, 60 units, maybe 10,000 square feet, but you can buy those all day for three to $500,000. So that's kind of the starting point. We now don't look at any deals under 20,000 square feet, but one of our best deals ever was in Pittsburgh. It was a 66 unit, $472,000. I think we spent on it and we're about to refi it at, at about a million dollar valuation. So there's definitely a huge opportunity in the smaller deals too. Are you more focused on square footage or unit counts? That depends. I mean, there's a balance between the two. Every unit has a price on it and that you can charge in rent. And if it has a customer in it, you're getting that rent. So it's a big math problem for us. I think our bottom line is about $10,000 a month in revenue right now. If a facility is not doing that, it's not really worth our time to acquire. But we bought properties that were doing five, $6,000 a month and they've been really great. So I'd say it's more about revenue. So a mix between square footage and units. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. 
Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. The return metrics that I personally focus on for my rentals are cash on cash return and net cash flow per door. Going back to what we mentioned before about how complex analysis can be, I mean, there's a thousand different return metrics you could look at. But for me, I've simply boiled it down to those two things. In the self storage world, what return metrics are you focusing on and what do you find to be a satisfactory number for those metrics? We're looking for 8% cash on cash yield first year. That's what we need to make it work with our real estate private equity company, how we raise money from outside investors. So when you hit 20,000 square feet, you're deploying over a million dollars. That's kind of our baseline. And any deal we buy, we want it to be a minimum of a million dollar capital deployment. And yeah, 8% cash on cash with some appreciation as far as upside goes is what we're looking to get in on a deal. Is cash on cash really the only metric you're really focused on for returns? I think the rest takes care of itself. Yeah. I mean, unlevered yield on cost is another one that I really love. If a facility costs a million bucks, if we paid for it in cash, what would be our yield on cost? I mean, what's the cap rate of the deal? 8% or better, 7% or better, 6% or better, depending on the upside down the road is a solid metric. If we know we're going to buy a bigger deal that's $1 or $2 million and it's at a 7% unlevered yield the cost first year, we know that that deal can work. We know our cash on cash will be 8 to 12%. So those are the two metrics that I like most. I like how you said, you know, the rest just takes care of itself. I say the exact same thing. And that's why I boiled it down to these two numbers, because I know if I meet both of my requirements for these two numbers, pretty much any other metric that I'm worried about is taken care of almost every single time that's been the case. So I've basically said, let's just simplify this analysis, get rid of everything else and just focus on these two numbers and the rest will take care of itself. Like you said. Yeah. Commercial real estate's a little tricky because we do shorter term loans. You on your rentals, you may be able to lock in an interest rate. I mean, what's your average? How long is your interest rate locked when you buy an asset? So we're doing five-year, 20-year amortization. Okay. Wow. That's aggressive. Yeah. So it's not like a 30-year fixed mortgage, but we're in the same boat where three years, the interest rate is changing. So that makes a deal risky, right? If, if interest rates go up and all of a sudden we have to secure debt at 6%, 7% on a deal three years from now, that makes a deal risky. So for me, it's all about risk-adjusted yield. So just going from a pure cash-on-cash perspective doesn't tell the whole story because you can structure a deal in a lot of different ways to make that cash-on-cash juicier. You can do seller financing, you can get an interest-only period, whatever it might be. 
we like to look at that unlevered yield on cost too, because then it's like, okay, at 50% leverage, what's the debt yield? At 75% leverage, what's the debt yield? Three years from now, we have an 8% interest rate. Do we lose the property or do we keep the property? Those are things like, you know, worst case scenarios that we like to analyze. When I mentioned the terms that we're using, you mentioned that it's aggressive and I don't disagree, but I'm curious if you find it less aggressive because of the asset class that we're in. So I agree that it is a little bit competitive, but I'm not super worried about it because they're single family homes. And so the market, at least, I mean, and again, that's right now, who knows if 2007, 2008 happens again, but at least I feel single families are relatively easy to offload. Like I feel like I could go to market and sell a property within 60 to 90 days, worst case scenario, if I had to, in if I had to get out of that loan. Whereas maybe with self-storage, three years, you know, I don't know how easy it is to sell a self-storage facility and it might be a little bit harder than a single family. So is that a dynamic that you think about when you're considering these terms? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Commercial real estate takes six months to a year to sell and sometimes you can't sell it. So if interest rates go up a lot, we have to be prepared to hold on to these assets through whatever might be thrown at us. You're right. hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. And worst case, five years comes, I have to get a new loan. Interest rates are super high. I'll just sell the property. And I should be able to liquidate it a little bit easier given it's a single family. Well, you'll take a bath though. If interest rates are super high, you'll sell for half what you paid for it. This is true. Yeah, absolutely true. But the liquidation process should be easier, I think. Yeah. It depends on how much equity you have, I guess. I think the single family rental space in some markets is good still. And in some, it's just absolutely insane. And if you're taking any leverage at all, it's just massive risk. Yeah, completely agree. One of the components that I think has made self-storage seem daunting to me has been the level of competition that I perceive there to be. At least where I live, there seems to be self-storage facilities everywhere. And I actually go back and forth with myself on self-storage competition because we've talked about this. I buy residential rentals, which arguably probably has the most competition of any real estate asset class. But for some reason, one of the limiting beliefs I personally have holding me back from getting started in self-storage is the perceived level of competition. Maybe it's because everyone needs a place to live, but not everyone needs to rent a self-storage unit. Or maybe it's because I've never actually rented a self-storage unit myself. So I'd personally disconnect with the need for a self-storage unit. How do you perceive the competition in self-storage? What are you doing to compete in such a competitive asset class? I mean, one of my philosophies on business and life is to compete with dumb, rich people. If there's people who are doing really well and they're just not that good at what they do, it's a good place to compete. Like, I'm not going to go try to go to the NBA because I know I'm going to compete with LeBron James and people who have dedicated their entire life to being the best of the best. I'm not going to go start a venture capital backed tech startup because I know I'm going to have to compete against the Stanford grads and the venture capital money. Self storage is something that most people can't buy because you need a lot of cash. So that takes away almost all the retail investors who need really good debt terms and have an extra 20 to 50 grand sitting around. Nobody who has an extra 20 to 50 grand sitting around can put together a storage deal unless they go out and raise a bunch of money and understand real estate, private equity, and all that stuff. So there's a lot less players. And I look at how they run their business. Most of them have a full on-site manager. Most of them don't manage revenue. Most of them don't have a website. So I love storage because I feel like the competition sucks. How did you learn how to not suck? I think it's my service business. I mean, I started that business in 2011 as a 22 year old, and that's what I credit. I mean, yeah, we did a lot of work to not make very much money in the grand scheme, but man, did it teach me about managing people and marketing and dealing with customers and having the operational chops to build a company that can, you know, provide a consistent service to your customers. So, I mean, we just looked at the business and said, hey, what do these people waste money on? Or, hey, what are they not doing well? And turns out 
I mean, they're doing fine. They're making really good money and they're just not innovating. They're still running it like it's 1985 in a lot of places. I don't necessarily win deals because of what you just mentioned, but I completely agree. And I always talk about on the show how technology is so lacking in the real estate space. Like a lot of mom and pop entrepreneurs and real estate investors just are not using technology. And I invest almost exclusively long distance with my rentals, and people are always shocked to hear that. And they're in cities I've never been to, I've never seen the properties, and they're always amazed at how that's happening. And I just, the simple answer is technology. Technology makes all of that possible. Yeah, you can get to know a town by walking around on Google Maps and looking at the gas stations and hanging out virtually there. Yeah. And my agent will do a walkthrough on FaceTime and record the whole thing and send it to me. And that's no different than if I'm there, really. I mean, for me at least. When you were getting into this realm, how did you learn about private equity? You just said that if people can't get started, if they don't know how to do private equity and funding and all this. So if somebody's interested, they want to learn how to do that. What are the resources that they should look for? How did you learn about it? I learned about it a lot through Twitter in the last year. I mean, we were using kind of a creative deal structure for our first deals. We've moved to a more traditional structure now. We've looked at a lot of deals from sponsors. I mean, the best way is to go on CrowdStreet and go on Fundrise and look at the deals and download the packages and just analyze the hurdles and where the money goes after the hurdles. And then you got one tab open on Google and you're Googling, you know, what is a preferred return? And on the other page, you're looking at a deal on Fundrise that says, you know, 8% pref, 50% promote. What does that mean? Well, the 8% pref goes to the LPs because they put the cash in. The 50% promote is how the cash is split up after that, right? So the waterfall structures can get complicated, but it's a preferred return and a promote is, is what the main concepts are. And once you understand that the people who put in the cash are entitled to the first X percent of yield that that property produces, you can think about what you might be able to sell investors on and what might make it worth it for them. We talk frequently here on the show about focusing on one strategy in real estate versus dabbling in many different strategies. There's the philosophy of the one thing from Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. And then on the other side, there's the philosophy from Gary V, who talks about how he loves trying to juggle so many balls at once. One of the reasons I like to talk about this on the show and ask a lot of guests about this topic is because it's something that I personally struggle with myself. I always have a lot of different things I'm working on. And I wonder if I'd be better off and more successful if I just shut down some of them and really focused on one. Recently, an apartment developer named Moses Kagan tweeted saying, when I see jack of all trades or generalist in a young person's bio, I die a little inside. The world rewards specificity and focus with compounding skill, knowledge, relationships, and personal brand. Jumping around among industries and roles breaks the compounding. And you responded and quoted the tweet and said, I'll take the other side of this. I was a generalist dabbling in 20 things as a 20-year-old, served me very well. My fourth business finally got some traction. I've been focusing a little more every day since then. Jumping to a different ladder is the best way to climb a little higher. None of that is specifically real estate related, but it can be used in that context as well as many other contexts. Talk to us a bit more about your thoughts on this dynamic of focusing on one thing or one strategy versus working on many different things at once. So I think there's nuance here. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm trying to do unique things. I'm trying to build businesses. I'm trying to build generational wealth and I take a lot of risk. So for me, I have to know a little bit about a lot. I have to be a generalist. But many people don't go that way. Maybe entrepreneurship's not for them. Maybe they are looking to serve a really significant need for a small group of people and being focused serves them. I mean, obviously you look at doctors and lawyers and things like that, the people who really need to be specific scientists, that's on one side of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum is a guy like me who 
tried selling t-shirts. I tried starting a track and field camp business. I tried a lawn care company. And then the storage company came to me on a whim, started it, figured it out. Didn't know much about hiring, training, marketing, finance, tax, any of it. Learned a little bit of everything onto the next business. And then as momentum grows, you can focus more when you figure out where the opportunities are. And part of it is as a 20-year-old, I had no idea what I was good at. I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no idea where my talents would be best served. So I'm really glad that I experimented and tried a lot of stuff or I never would have found that. I think people who are trying to be different and people who are have the entrepreneurial bone, they need to try a lot of stuff. You have to try a lot of stuff. You have to throw spaghetti at a wall and see what fits. But I also had the discipline to stick out a business that was not fun for three years, right? I stuck out the student moving and storage business when we were making very little money and a family was like, Nick, what the hell are you doing with your Ivy League degree? Are you really moving boxes around? I stuck it out, even though a lot of people would have quit. And I'm really glad I did. So yeah, I think there's nuance there, but to do something spectacular, you have to be pretty good at everything because if you're going to run a company and be an entrepreneur, very soon the company will outgrow whatever your one skill set is. And you have to be able to guide that company through a lot of different stuff. You're clearly a busy guy building real businesses, yet you still make a lot of time for social media, specifically Twitter. At least it seems like it from the outside. Why is that? What impact does growing a large social media following have on your businesses? It has supercharged my career. It has given me access to capital. I mean, we've raised $7 million for self-storage deals in the last six months. All $7 million of it came from people that I met on Twitter. So that is supercharging my real estate private equity company. I become more of a teacher. And when you teach, you have to really be clear and you learn a lot about yourself. The best way to become a master of something is teach it. I know online courses have a lot of negative connotation, but I wrote a real estate course and sold $300,000 of it in a week. And I got a lot better at real estate in the whole process. Done... 150 grand worth of self storage consulting in the past six months. It's supercharging my network. I can't believe what it's doing to the people that I know. And I mean, even me and you right here connecting because of Twitter. Let's go back to the focus versus diversification. There's so many different social media platforms. The only one that I personally see you super, super active on is Twitter. Is that by design? Is that strategy? You pick one platform and focus on it? Or talk to us a little bit how you think about that. Yeah. I was on Reddit for a long time. That's where I was trying to... I run a podcast called The Sweaty Startup Podcast that kind of promotes entrepreneurship and, and sweaty small business and, and a lot of real estate too. And I got on Reddit to try to promote that to the entrepreneurship community. And it was worth it. I mean, I was able to get a little bit of traction behind my brand, but I wasn't building real connections. Everybody has an anonymous name on, on Reddit. The DMs don't work very well. It's kind of confusing. Twitter is, in my experience, where a ton of really smart people hang out who are making deals. So... I've just met a lot of really badass entrepreneurs and real estate professionals on Twitter. I don't know if it's the same on Instagram or TikTok or Facebook, but Twitter is where big deals happen when it comes to small business and real estate. It's funny because if you think about professional networks, I think the first one most people think of is LinkedIn, right? That's the professional social network. Yet I agree completely with what you just said. My opinion and my experience, Twitter is what has the highest level of professionals, I guess, using the platform. Like, If you go to Instagram and TikTok and Facebook, I think that the level of quality people that you're interacting with is a lot lower than what you find on Twitter. And it's just really interesting to see that. LinkedIn is kind of like a resume. People can make a resume look. Have you ever seen a bad looking resume? I mean, I haven't. Every resume look makes everybody who's semi-competent at writing a resume look good. Instagram is photos. Can you really learn a lot about somebody by what photos they take and how good those photos look? I can't. Twitter is a look into somebody's mind. Twitter gives you a look into how they think, how they write, how they formulate their thoughts, what they're working on, what they're doing, what excites them, how they handle 
people who are jerks. I mean, you get to see it all. You get to look into somebody's mind. So there's no better way to learn and to learn a lot really fast than following smart people on Twitter, in my opinion, because you get to look into their mind. I mean, it's a blessing and a curse. You see how crazy our politicians are when they get nuts on Twitter, but you also see how brilliant our entrepreneurs are when you see how they think and how they share and what they're sharing. And you also get tons of feedback from all those smart people. So me now with 130,000 followers, I can tweet about one of my real estate deals and how I'm thinking about structuring it. And I guarantee you every single tweet, I'm going to learn something because somebody really smart out there is going to read it and say, Oh, Nick, have you thought about this? Or why didn't you explore that? Or the seller financing terms on this deal wasn't quite right because I share my deals way out in the open. I'm building in public. I'm learning about everything. So when I start to tweet about my deals, I get challenged and the blind spots show up and people are like, Hey, Nick, you didn't think about this, that, or the other. And I get smarter. So it's an amazing place. I'm so thankful for it. How do you respond to those comments when somebody points out something that you didn't think of? You're putting a deal out there. You're the one putting this deal together. You know, you're assumed to be the expert, but somebody finds something that you didn't know. How do you respond to that? I mean, obviously the ego takes a hit, right? You got to swallow the pride. But if you if you have an open mind and you have strong opinions that are loosely held, there's no better way to get smarter. So I love it. I mean, it makes me better when people challenge me and we iterate and I feel like I can get smarter faster when other people are critiquing the way I think about things constantly. And you mentioned jerks too. I mean, that's a piece of social media. It's a part of podcasting. It's a part of any public, you know, putting anything out in the public. How do you deal with that? I think the unfortunate, one of the unfortunate truths of humanity is that a good chunk, I mean, what percentage we could argue, but I'd say 50% of people in this country are just not happy people. They're not happy. They don't like where they are. They feel like they haven't accomplished what they should have accomplished. And so they're pissed off at the whole world. They're pissed off at successful people. They're pissed off at happy people. They're pissed off at anybody they're seeing doing better than them. And it's not a world of abundance for them. It's a world of scarcity, meaning there's only so much. And if somebody's winning, they're taking from me and screw those people who are doing well. And yeah, just understanding that those people are there and they think that way and you can't change their mind and it's best not to engage with them. And it's just an unfortunate part of life. I think once you come to terms with that and don't take it personal, it gets a little bit easier. But yeah, it's always hard when people are really mean. They're brutal. Whether it's about life in general or investing, real estate, self-storage related, what piece of advice have you received that has really had an impact on you and you continue to use it and think of it to this day? The new idea, revolutionary, you got to be way better than everybody else to succeed is just such bullshit. I think if you can find simple things that other people are already doing that are just proven ways to win. And if you don't try to overthink it, you don't try to overcomplicate it, you can do well. I mean, look at me. I'm sharing my entire playbook online, telling everybody how I do everything. And yet we're buying $50 million worth of self-storage every six months. It's just... And we're not doing anything special. Anybody could do what we're doing. I mean, yeah, it's hard. We have some really good people on our team who are helping us. But I just think the people who are trying to do, trying to reinvent the wheel new idea, entrepreneurship, trying to find a super competitive advantage are just in the weeds. I think there's tons of competitive advantages in really simple industries that you can just that people overlook. As we wrap up this episode, I want to give you a chance to tell the audience where they can connect with you after the show. You can follow me on Twitter. It's at Sweaty Startup. Also, I have the Sweaty Startup podcast and sweatystartup.com with a lot of cool stuff on real estate and small business and entrepreneurship. But you can also email me. Um, Nick at sweatystartup.com is my email if you want to connect. Always looking to grow my network. And I do a lot of trying to give back on Twitter, a lot of things I know and the things I'm learning along the way. So I think that's the best way to connect with me. I'll be sure to put a link to all of the ways you can connect with Nick below in the show notes for anyone that's interested. Nick, thanks so much for joining me. Really appreciate it, Robert. Thanks so much, man.
All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.